I'd like to begin this morning by reading from Genesis 23, and then follow that with a few verses from chapter 25. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered, Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered, Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place for the Hittites. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in, a good, died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. For some time now, since just after Easter, I believe, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, uh, along with his wife Sarah, of course, and, and this morning we reach the conclusion of their story with the death of both Abraham and, and Sarah. 
And if you've been journeying with us for these uh, number of weeks, uh, you'll understand uh, when I say that, we've, that they've kind of become like friends as we've journeyed through their kind of highs and lows, the, the good and the bad, the, the, the twists and the turns of their lives, which really has charted about 60 or so years over the time that we've been looking at them. And, and over those 60 or so years, as I say, they definitely had their ups and their downs. Uh, there were, of course, the times where they led each other astray. Uh, we remember the occasion when Abraham uh, lied the, uh, about the fact that he was married to Sarah, uh, not just once, but twice, once to Pharaoh and once to Abimelech. Uh, and likewise, uh, we remember the time when, when Sarah led Abraham off of the straight and narrow by suggesting that he take Hagar, the, the servant girl, as a concubine with the particularly bad idea that she might be something of a surrogate for them. So, yes, on the one hand, they are great heroes of faith, but on the other hand, sometimes their failures are as epic as their faith. And the reality is they're a lot more uh, identifiable to our own, own lives than, than we might first imagine. And, and as we, we've journeyed with them, we, we've seen them experience some of what we experience. You know, they experienced what it was like to, to be out on their own as a married couple with, with God calling them away from, from home and, and family support. They experienced like many, uh, what it was like to struggle to put food on the table uh, with the famine of, of Genesis chapter 12. They, they experienced something of the frustration of a lack of home ownership, again, like so many, with, with God calling them to, to live in tents for 60 some odd years of their lives. Not only that, but they've all, we've also seen them struggle with a blended family, managing kind of ex-partners and children in different relationships. Uh, we've seen how they've had their fair share of arguments, especially over how to parent the children, particularly in relation uh, to Abraham's son, uh, Ishmael. Uh, we've seen them experience what it's like to have a son backslide, if you like, um, with Lot being Abraham's nephew, but really kind of like a, a, a son-like character to him, uh, you know, going off to, into the world of Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, we've seen over uh, this period of time how they struggled with childlessness. They struggled for decades, actually, to conceive. Although they experienced and went through these kinds of trials and, and tribulations, they also, in these 60-some-odd years, experienced some moments of real joy. And of course, we see that in particular in relation to the birth, the miraculous birth of their son Isaac when Sarah was 90 years old. And now, after all that they've been through, 60-odd years together, the highs and the lows, it's time for them to be separated by death, with God calling Sarah home. And as he does, we see Abraham drop to his knees and weep the first tears in the whole Bible as he mourns the loss of his precious wife. And some of you know that experience all too well, having lost, having yourself lost a spouse. And and, and you may even continue to feel the excruciating pain of it to this very day, whether the loss was experienced 
just recently or years ago. And you know, as an aside, we, the reality is that in our culture, we're very geared to the first day. And by the first day, I mean the wedding day. And rightly so. The wedding day is an amazing day, and it's appropriate to celebrate the creation of a, of a marriage a covenant. But our culture speaks not so much about the last day, the last day that Abraham and Sarah experience here. And, and, and the reality is, is that the last day is actually greater than the first day. The last day defines the success of the first day. And while we kind of, in our culture, have kind of, you know, bridal magazines and bridal exhibition, you know, exhibitions, and, and, and we have all kinds of, you know, TV programs about brides and weddings and so on, the reality is that we don't have many kind of how to bury your spouse magazines. And there aren't many TV programs about it. But what we see here is that Abraham mourns and weeps when Sarah is taken from him. And I guess the first thing to note, really, is just how real and honest the Bible is. What the Bible doesn't say here is, and an angel of the Lord came to Abraham saying, Abraham, Abraham, chin up. Why are you crying? Sarah's with me in heaven now. No, no, no. The Bible acknowledges mourning and death. It doesn't shy away from tears. At the death of friends, family, even foes, the Bible affirms the crucial role of mourning. And so we mustn't kind of just gloss over his tears here. It's good to linger here for a moment, at least. And the truth is that these kinds of tears were never ever meant to touch the soil of this earth. And to understand where death even came from, because death was not a part of God's original plan, to understand where death came from, we really need to go back to another key marriage in the Bible, and that's the first one, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Because God would create Adam and Eve, humanity, and then place them into a garden called Eden, giving them great responsibility and great freedom. And he said to them, you can eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, but there's this one tree that you're forbidden from eating the fruit from. And he warned them, saying, if you eat the fruit from this tree, you will surely die. And of course, we all know the story. That's exactly what they did. They chose to disobey God, and in so doing, they would choose sin rather than righteousness, which is to choose death rather than life. And the two are correlated. The, the Bible says sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death, which means that if sin, if sin is the seed, then death is the tree that sprouts from the, the, the seed to do, and dominates the whole land. And so through this choice, humanity would cut themselves off from God and actually bring upon ourselves a curse. And in Genesis 3, verse 19, God says to the man and the woman, return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And just as a flower taken out from its source dies, so too humanity now cut off from its source, the God who created it would now surely die. This is the origin of death. And this is the origin of Abraham's great suffering here as he mourns for his wife and he weeps over her. There, there is a sense that this is not how it was supposed to be in the beginning. 
But it's also important for us to note that this isn't the last thing that the Bible would say on this matter by no means. Uh, because God would actually immediately begin his work of renewing all that he created. And that's very much what we've been studying over these last number of weeks here in, in this series. God choosing a man, Abraham, looking to raise up for himself uh, in the midst of the earth a people characterized by faith. Ultimately completing and culminating this renewal in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for Jesus to achieve this renewal, he would have to step into this world of sin, this world of mourning, this world of death, and he would have to experience something of what Abraham experiences here, the trauma of loss. And Jesus lost people. Jesus lost his cousin. His cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded. And when Jesus receives word that John the Baptist has died, the Bible says that he withdrew to a desolate area by himself. Not only did Jesus lose his cousin, but Jesus lost his stepdad, Joseph, with it widely being accepted that Joseph died when Jesus was a young age. Joseph likely died when Jesus was a teenager, perhaps, a, perhaps slightly older. One thing we know for certain is that there is no record of this good man after Jesus is 12 years old. Jesus didn't just lose his cousin and his stepdad. Jesus would lose his dear friend Lazarus. When Jesus saw the, the sorrow that, that, that Martha and Mary were, were experiencing because of the death of their brother Lazarus, he was deeply moved. And when he saw the, the tomb, he wept. Even though he knew he, would, he was about to, to raise, at least temporarily, Lazarus from, from the dead. Jesus knew what it, what it was to mourn. He knew what it was to weep. He wept tears at the funeral of Lazarus. He would cry out with loud cries and tears in intense seasons of, of prayer. He would weep and cry over the city of Jerusalem at how wayward it was. And Jesus knew a thing or two about weeping, about mourning. Because Jesus could enter into this experience of ours and, we, and wept tears, he would become a savior uniquely able to wipe away our tears. That's what Revelation 21 verse 4 reminds us, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And if this is true, if this is true, it means that no tear that you have ever shed has been forgotten. It means that no tear that you have ever shed has been wasted. Because just as Jesus keeps a record of the number of hairs on our head, so too Jesus keeps a record of the number of tears that you have shed. Psalm 56, verse 8, he says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book, the psalmist says. Tears are important to God. Abraham's tears here, they're important to God. Your tears, your tears are important to God. Now that's Abraham here. What about Sarah? We see Abraham in his grief, but Sarah here breathes her last. She died old and 
full of years at the age of 127. Uh, it doesn't say that she suffered a long illness. She, she didn't die a tragic death in the prime of her life. Yep, in one sense, death is always a, a tragedy, as we've said. There's always a sense of sadness and loss on the part of those who, 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 who those left behind. But, but what about the person who passes through death? What do Sarah's experience from God in their dying moments? Well, this is what, it sa- what the Bible says. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 116. And while I'm tempted at this point to rush on to resurrection and talk about the glories of heaven, which actually this passage is, is bursting with, we do well just to linger on the preciousness of a believer's death. And this isn't just theory for many of us. It certainly wasn't just theory for many of us yesterday when we, we came together to celebrate the life and mourn the death of a dear sister in the Lord. And, and I think it's, it's good and right for us to ask and consider the question, when we or someone we love faces death, what is it that is experienced in those dying moments? Because even when surrounded by family and by friends, those final moments are taken alone. But is the believer really alone when he dies? Does Jesus help in those final moments? Is he there? Well, the Bible says that God reveals himself as a very present help in times of trouble. And I think it's safe to say that there are a few times in life that are more troubling than our own death. But the Bible declares that God is not far from us. He is ever-present and near. And so therefore, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you should expect from God in death more of what you've received from God in life. With the Lord Jesus being the good shepherd, shepherding his people through, through the valley of the shadow of death. That's what Jesus is like. And we see an example of Jesus being all of this and more to a man who is literally a few minutes, few moments away from his death. There's a a man who was crucified next to Jesus. We call him the thief on the, on the cross. And he was crucified justly by his own admission. And, and, a, and a Roman crucifixion was reserved for the very worst of the worst. And so you can imagine the sort of things that he did in his life. And yet, at the very end of his life, he puts his faith in Jesus. He acknowledges, I deserve this. I deserve the, the punishment I'm receiving But Jesus, remember me, remember me in your kingdom. And as this man is fading away, Jesus directs his gaze towards him and says, I assure you, you today will be with me in paradise. Even in Jesus' own pain and dying moments, it would prove impossible to prevent him from shepherding his own right to the very end. And that's just one example. We might also think of another example in the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And he began speaking boldly to the religious leaders of the day. And it got him killed. He was stoned for it. And as he was dying, it says that he saw heaven open and he saw the Son of Man, who is Jesus, seated at the right hand of God. 
only he wouldn't be seated. The Bible talks often about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, seated. He's finished his work, but at this moment, Stephen saw Jesus standing. In the most out-of-control moment of Stephen's life, his own death, Jesus would split the heavens and show Stephen who is really in control. He showed him with the king rising to his feet, cheering on Stephen in his faith-filled death. So friends, this morning, let me remind you that we have a, a God, we have a friend that weeps with those who weep, who weep, comforts those who mourn, and promises to ever be a good shepherd to you, whether in life or in death. This is not the only thing that we see here in this passage. We also see what gets Abraham through and, and, and encourage him, encourages him as he mourns the, the death of his wife. And that is the hope of resurrection. It says, and Abraham rose up before his dad, and he begins, as he rises up from weeping, he begins once again to just ooze faith and hope. You see, the occasion of death is a time for, for thinking seriously about eternal things. And for Abraham, the, the death of Sarah underlined the transitory nature of his existence here on earth. And so when he came to the Hittites, the people among whom he was living uh, at this time, he, he said, I am an alien, an alien and a sojourner uh, among you. I mean, it was now some 60 years on since God had called him to go to the land that, that, that he would give him. And yet here he was, so many years later, still an alien and a stranger, owning no land and having no secure status in the community. He was still just passing through. And so the death of Sarah was a time for Abraham to again exercise faith and hope. And his faith is really seen in where he chooses to bury Sarah, in where he chooses to bury her. Well, that may sound a bit strange, but just stay with me for a moment. You see, we have this detailed description here of this elaborate and somewhat bizarre exchange and negotiation to purchase this piece of land in which to bury his wife, to purchase the field in which Sarah would be buried. You see, Abraham hasn't owned any land at all, even, even though he's a, a, a very rich man. And so he enters negotiation with one of the tribes in the land of Canaan. And it's a real faith move for him here. As he purchases this land, and then it says, verse 19, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. You see, Canaan is the place that God told Abraham and his wife Sarah to move to, to leave their country, kindred, and father's house, and to move to this new land that they likely had never been to before, but they would obey him and go to Canaan and live there for over 60 years. And it would be in Canaan that God would promise them descendants, and not just descendants, but God promised them descendants outnumbering the stars in the sky. And moreover, he would say that these descendants are going to inherit this land, the land of Canaan, it's going to be theirs. I, I, I'm going to give it to them as a possession. 
And that is precisely the point of what is happening here in this chapter. Abraham is buying a piece of land on which to bury his dead in faith that one day the entire promised land would be his. Not simply uh, a, a borrowed piece of property for him to, and for his wife. No borrowed tomb would suffice, but a piece in which they held clear title. Owning the sliver of Canaan, trusting that the fullness of what God had promised him, he would ultimately receive. And indeed, Abraham himself would also be buried on this very spot, uh, as would Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah. And, and when Joseph was about to die, he gave instructions that his body wouldn't be buried in Egypt, but it, that it would be put in a coffin so that he, it could be brought up out of that place and reburied in the promised land. And so this field in Machpelah was therefore the first fruits of the promised land. It was God's down payment. It provided assurance that one day the whole land would be theirs. This gravesite was the first piece of his promise eternal inheritance. Abraham was so confident in the promises of God that he didn't just plant his flag in the ground at Canaan. He would plant his body in the ground of Canaan. But you know what? Here's the thing. These key promises of God, they were somewhat fulfilled, somewhat, in the time of Joshua. Joshua being... Uh, the leader that took over from Moses who would lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Uh, that's ultimately what would happen. But in the grand scheme of things, it, it, it was short-lived. It wouldn't achieve the fullness of what God had promised. And frankly, this is where Abraham's faith was pretty amazing because, you see, Abraham all the while was really never looking to a physical kind of land for God to fulfill his promises. He wasn't looking to an earthly land principally. No, Abraham believed that the promises that were promised to him of land and descendants would ultimately be fulfilled through a heavenly land. I mean, we see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, where the writer of Hebrews says this, Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose, designers, whose designer and builder is God. You see, Abraham was actually all the while looking to nothing on earth. He, he understood that ultimately his hope was in the resurrection, that he'd, been, he'd be raised from the dead and he would inherit all of the promise of God through being raised. And this land, this land that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, is what we call heaven. And it's described in some detail in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, for instance, it says this, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Meaning that this kind of promised earth land of Canaan was something of a seed. It was something that was pointing to this promised heavenly land that was yet to come. 
And that was to be inherited ultimately through the resurrection. In other words, that by, that by Abraham and Sarah living in Canaan, they were living in faith-filled anticipation of a coming kingdom. And it means that through the mourning of the death of his wife, Abraham trusted that he and Sarah would one day be raised from the dead, living forever in this city, in the midst of their descendants, the people of faith that would, that would number more than the, the stars in the sky. Abraham trusted that God would renew all that he had created, that God would renew all things that that death had defiled and destroyed, ushering in a new era. Abraham trusted that the fullness of the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. He knew that God had given him a greater hope. A greater hope than just, ah, Sarah, she's in a better place now. Uh, a greater hope than Sarah, we will see each other again. All those, those two things are absolutely true. But Abraham trusted that he and Sarah would both see the earth being filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How? Well, it says this in Revelation 21. He was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you can have this same confidence. You can have the same confidence as Abraham in the resurrection. In fact, in the one who declares himself to be the resurrection. For just as, as Abraham, at, at great cost to himself, would, would pay the price to enable his beloved to get into the land, the promised land, so too Jesus would pay an even greater price to enable the ones he loves to enter into the heavenly promised land. And Jesus wouldn't pay with mere shekels or dollars. Jesus would pay with a far more costly commodity. Jesus would pay with his own blood, being nailed to a cross, dying for our sins, paying the penalty for us, making provision for the forgiveness of God to come to us and enabling us to enter into the same promised land that Abraham was hoping for. Because Jesus has died for us and was laid in another cave. Because of that, we have hope. But his tomb was borrowed, not purchased, because he wasn't going to need it all that long. For on the third day he rose again as promised, and because of that, death is now the door through which those who believe in Jesus enter life. That reality was still far in the future for Abraham, but by burying this, this buying this piece of land, Abraham was testifying to his faith in the enduring power of the promises of God. He had faith that not even death could separate him from the love of God. And that is what, in former generation, what former generations would have called dying well. It is dying with full assurance of faith that death, while tragic for those who, who remain behind, is, it, it is not the end. Rather, it is the door through which you enter into the full measure of the inheritance that God has prepared for those who love him. And so like Abraham, we too must live by faith and die by faith, 
receiving in part, but not yet receiving in full what God has promised. That's what it means to live by faith in the reality gap, living as we do in the place where, where it seems that there is this huge difference between what God has promised and what we now see and experience. I mean, we live in a real world that is full of joys and sorrows, success, successes and failures, ups and downs. We live in a world where, where things, you know, where Things and people, you know, fail and fall apart. That's the reality. The reality is often painful when those who suffer and die are our loved ones. But the Christian, like Abraham, recognizes a reality beyond this reality, a world beyond this world, a story beyond history. He or she knows by faith that the painful reality that we see all around us will one day pass away. And it will be replaced by a world in which God will dwell with his people. In which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Then we shall see him face to face. And the reality gap will be finally gone. And it will be on that day that Jesus, when he returns, brings the curtain down on, on this age as, as he brings heaven down, ready for the eternal age. And it will be on that day that he finally concludes the work that he started with this man, Abraham. History now complete. Renewal accomplished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the certainty and the surety of your word. We thank you for Abraham and for Sarah, for the promise that, you, that you've made to them and the faith that you gave them. And all that you were doing in their lives was pointing forward to what you would do and fulfill in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would cause us to be equally men and women of faith, that we would know what it is to live by faith, and even more, that we would know what it is to die in faith, to die with the hope of the certainty of the promises that you have made. For we know that all your promises, your yes and amen, are all found on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.